A new book argues that art copyists get a bad rap. They're not always forgers, are to scam the unwary. In fact, there's an art to copying art that deserves its own place in art history. Former Public Art Gallery curator and director Penelope Jackson is the chair of the New Zealand Art Crime Research Trust. For her book, she's delved into the history and the many reasons, legitimate and nefarious, for people to copy works of art over the centuries. Some are student artists making copies as part of their training. Some are creating props for movies. Penelope starts by explaining why she believes art copyists have a valid place in art history. You look at how many artworks are copied and the significant role that copies play and the lack of attention that they've received, I think that's why they deserve attention. And the more, of course, I started to dig and research, the more examples I found and the more motivations for copying I discovered and explored. So, you know, it's an area that has been overlooked. You know, I'm not quite sure why. I mean, certainly in printmaking, uh, perhaps it has been looked at, copies, but I've looked at more um, paintings and sculpture. But for me, yeah, it's very, very deserving. And I just think it needs that attention. And I think especially perhaps writing from New Zealand, where we had this sort of within the colonial context, we received a lot of copies here. You make the point also, and you're quite right, when we're talking about copying art, what first comes to mind is forgery. Um, But you make the point that copying is a very broad term, really, when you delve into it. Absolutely. It's huge. And I've organised the book by motivation and the the motivate the forgery that you've just mentioned that's really only one aspect of it I've called that chapter you know cash for copies but there are so many other kinds of copies and I think that's the problem it's had a bad rap you know forgery fraudulent art gives copying a bad rap but I mean the first case I kind of look at the first uh, images are the Russell statues in the Auckland uh, War Memorial Museum they provided a slice of Europe for Auckland Museum, you know, visitors, but also they were used by the very first free art school students in New Zealand to copy, to draw from. Their European counterparts would have worked from the authentic, but here in New Zealand, they worked from the plaster cast. So that's kind of like, you know, that's where I begin the book. So that's one kind of copying, and that's very positive. That's a an educative role. It's a, a teaching experience and a learning experience. And then the very last work that I just discuss in the book is Banksy's um, Game Changer. I don't know if you're familiar with that work, Lynn, but it was, um, he made it just a few years ago during the uh, pandemic, and it was a child holding up a doll, and the doll is a NHS nurse, you know, as a superhero. And he gifted it to Southampton Hospital, and it was decided after a while that they would actually sell it and use the funds to put back into the uh, the health system, which they did. And they raised $14 million for that. And a copy was made and hung in its place. So there's a couple of things going on there. One is that people can still see the image. And I'm sure it's clearly labelled because transparency around copying, that's you know all part of it too. They raised a huge amount of money But they also, at once, just before they actually took it down and copied it, somebody tried to steal it. And the security guards actually were alerted and caught this, you know, managed to stop this art heist. In that case, you know, the copy is playing a very significant role. Um, So, you know, they're just two examples, kind of the extremities of copying. And as, as you point out, fraudulent copies, that's just one one aspect. 
You make the point that actually copying was accepted, also seen as, as flattery in some ways, until the 18th century. And this is what, when copyright came in, was formalised? Absolutely, that's right. It was. And I mean, if you look at some of the early artists, you look at people like Bruegel, etc., and uh, Rembrandt, they were copied you know, over and over. And yeah, it certainly was. It was a bit of a production line in some studios and it was uh, a very a positive activity. It was a form of flattery, that's right. But uh, copyright came in and, um, you know, one of the issues that they had, and it's interesting tracking the history of, say, somewhere, especially places like France at the Louvre, of the apprentice artists, you know, making copies. They kept introducing new rules because, to try and, um, I guess, stop the the fraudulent sales of copies, you know, as authentic work. So they, you know, you couldn't copy to the exact size and you only had a certain amount of time and you had to have a certificate given to you at the end and it was stamped on the back but, uh, that it was a copy. So they kept introducing these new rules to deflect that whole fraudulent, the sales going on. But uh, it's certainly, and of course, art museums as they increased because the 19th century was the real age of the, the art museum, you know, and more and more students would go in there to copy. It, it became quite an issue. And it's interesting because, of course, that happened in New Zealand too. Art students here certainly uh, copy paintings. When I was working at the Robert McDougall Art Gallery in Christchurch, which is now the Christchurch Art Gallery, I used to have a fortnightly column in the press and I would highlight one of the works from the McDougall's collection. And uh, one particular July in 1991, I wrote about a little painting called Welcome Morsels, and it's a young girl feeding two goats at her cottage door. It's very sentimental, very English uh, by Leonard Nightingale. And so I, you know, researched about it and I wrote about it and the press comes out in the morning and I remember really clearly walking into my office and the phone was ringing and it was this irate person saying, how dare you put our painting in the paper without our permission? And I said, well, what do you mean? This isn't our, no, 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 that's ours. And um, so I took their name and number and tried to, you know, I said, okay, well, you know, look, I'm really sorry about that, blah, blah, blah. Within minutes, another phone call, same thing. Somebody really upset that I had gone ahead and put their painting in the paper. So I went and visited both of them. And sure enough, they both had copies of Welcome Morsels. And it had turned out that they had relatives who had been at the art school across the road from the gallery and, you know, they'd been set the task to copy one of the paintings and that's what they did. So they did have copies. Were they crushed? The, I mean, did they really they, believe they had the originals? <laughs> they, they were a little bit, but, you know, I was able to go and kind of appease them, but it was so, I thought maybe one call, okay, right, this is a bit odd. But then when the second one um, came along, I thought, no, there's, there's something going on here. And years and years later, in 2016, I decided to try and find one of those copies because I was curating an exhibition for Waikato Museum about art crime in New Zealand, but it wasn't really just about art crime. I wanted to also, for it to have a, an educational role and show people that you have can have legitimate copies, et cetera, and what to look out for. And so I tried to find one of these welcome morsels and I wrote to everyone with the surnames that I had of the two copies. I wrote to the Star newspaper and the press and they put stories in. And then eventually, weeks and weeks and weeks later, I got this email from a woman in Timaru who said she was reading the press at the GP's waiting room and saw the picture and thought, oh, my friend's got that. 
And sure enough, there was a copy in Timaru. So it was a wonderful find decades later, post-earthquakes, to actually locate one of those copies. In the book also, you remind us of Heather Stracker's show from 2009, The Asian. And this is really intriguing if we're talking about the role of the copyist. She's kind of playing with us. She had 59 copies and made of a portrait that she'd done. And she was challenging people to pick out hers among these <laughs> these other 50-plus copies. And they were made at that really famous village in um, Shenzhen in China. That's right. Yes, well, yes. so she painted one portrait she emailed 59 copies at Dauphin in China, which is the painting village. And at the time, there was something like, I think, 8,000 copyists work there. And she had all the copies made. And the exhibition, The um, the Asian, which was curated, um, well, it began at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery and then it toured it. And it came to Tauranga Art Gallery when I was the director there. And it was fabulous because it was hung in three rows of, of 20. And you had all these... Well, you know, I say identical, but with a little eye, portraits. And it was fascinating. It was a bit like, you know, spot the difference because you would walk along. And if you just took a motif, say if you looked at the eyes and walked along at all these portraits, there was something different and individual about every one. You know, the real challenge was to spot Heather's original authentic work. But, it, you know, it was really about, you know, mass production and copying and people were really were riveted by it. And it was really engaging. And I actually did something similar in the Waikato Museum exhibition because I chose two works from the collection and had copies made at Defen in China of those works. And people had to guess which was the authentic and which was the copy and put a little disc in a wee perspex box underneath um, the works. A couple of things. One, it was scaringly easy to have them made. I simply Googled, you know, copy Daphne, got onto this guy, sent him a couple of JPEGs, and three weeks later, in about 180, I think, American dollars, the portraits were in Hamilton, and they were really, really good. So, you know, that proved how easy it is. But the other thing that I was very clear about was writing an extended label telling people this is what I'd done and that I had cleared it with the estates of both the artists, Ida Carey and Dale Young Husband, and that at the end of the exhibition that the copies would be cut up so that there was no confusion down the line. You don't want some, you know, a curator in 20 years going, hmm, we've got two of these, someone, you know, kind of thing. And I've actually got a photo of them cut up, which is a really hard thing to do because they were really good copies and they're beautiful, but it had to be done. And I had to tell the public that because that was part of the exercise, part of that, you know, um, the, the role of, of that copy. Not always desirable. You've got the example in the book of Dick Frizzell, because uh, you make the point that one of the legitimate uses of copying is for limited edition prints. You know, that's that's what you're doing. You're doing X yes. number. They tend to have slight variations, limited number, um, but of a one con artist who wasn't as smart as they thought they were back in 2016. No, no, that was um, good on Dick, you know, Detective Dick, we might call him because, um, you know, quite often, you know, you see works, they, they come up on Trade Me and uh, he saw some of his prints and realised it was found out. And we cl- included those in the same exhibition at Waikato that they were actually uh, copies of his prints that someone was selling off. And of course, now, as you know, with, you know, modern, even with your smartphone you can take really good photographs so someone had taken a photograph had it printed had it framed but fortunately um they the 
picture framer had left there you know when you get something framed there's always a little sticker on the back with the name of the picture framer so Dick Frizzell went back to the picture frame and said well you know <laughs> who whose job was this kind of thing and found the culprit who had made the copies because you know his work is very popular and if you can pick up one for you know a hell of a lot cheaper on trade me then you might do and of course that's the other thing when you're looking at things on a screen you can't actually see the detail you can't see if it's an original or a copy or not um so that had a you know a happy ending in the end because you know dick managed to uh, stop that but you know he said to me that quite often he he's checking regularly and he's had to stop you know people on more than one occasion for doing that and then there are those who break into institutions and swap out originals with very convincing copies which often are not identified until you know, decades later, and the new technology, I guess, is helping people to identify copies and fakes. But the, but the stories around them are fascinating, and sometimes even the copies will stay, won't they, with the story attached in an institution that's been caught out? There's a lot of institutions that still are not quite ready to tell those stories. It's a bit like the art crime stories. You know, I always come back to the Rokeby Venus in the National Gallery in London that was um, slashed by Mary Richardson during the suffragettes, you know, the rampages in 1914, you know, wanting the vote. And there's still nothing on that label that says, you know, what that poor painting went through. Why not? Um, it's part of that painting's history. It's interesting because in that situation, there was a copy made for it um, because the, originally the, the painting was at Rokeby Hall in Yorkshire. And um, they decided the National Gallery purchased it, but the frame stayed at Rokeby Hall and a copy was made to put in it. But yeah, it is, you know, Lynn, it comes back to transparency. Um, and some places are really good about telling those stories. Others want to avoid it. People are interested. The more information you can give about that, the backstories to artworks, the better. And I think that's part of it. I mean, we, for a lot of us, for a lot of people, they learn about art through copies whether they know it or not I mean I there's a whole chapter there about the movies and uh, the props that are made for movies the girl with the pearl earring or the duke or Mr Turner all those art movies are full of copies and the process to go through to make them you know it could be a book in itself it, it's fascinating there was a, a fascinating story you tell at the start of the book about the painting called Ballarat in Ballarat uh, in the city's art gallery. And that this goes back to those vases you were talking about in a way, but could you give us a condensed version of that story? Because I, I had never heard it. Yeah, the Ballarat Art Gallery have got an amazing painting. It's kind of like a bird's eye view of the town and um, from the 19th century. And it was one of those instances where it was, it's kind of a, a third, I suppose, addition in that, you know, there was a drawing and then an etching and then a painting, which often happens. It's kind of evolved. So, you know, the artist who painted it never went to Australia, let alone Ballarat. So it was, you know, worked from a distance. So again, you know, Lynn, that this is the whole thing. There are so many different sorts of copies that are made, you know, and there's some wonderful examples like that one in Australia, 
one of the other ones, sorry, changing the topic slightly, is the wattle portrait, which you may have seen in the book. And it's a painting, a portrait of Queen Elizabeth in a very yellow dress. And it was the dress that she wore on her tour when she came to New Zealand and Australia in 1954. On her first night in Australia, she wore this yellow wattle dress. And on her last night, I think in Perth, she wore the same dress. And William Dargie, who was a very famous Australian artist, he got to paint her portrait uh, she sat for him about four times. She pa He painted it in London and it was going to be transported to Australia. But he was so worried that something might happen to it in transit that he made a copy, you know, always have a plan B. Now, to paint that copy, he painted it upside down because he did not want to be tempted to tweak it in any way or make any adjustments. It had to be an identical copy, uh, which is wonderful. And, and he tells that story. It's written actually on the back of the copy, um, what his intention was. So copies are made in very different ways, including, you know, the development of technology has really assisted in how copies have made. And I also give the example in the book of the uh, Wedding of Cana painting in, um, by Veronese, which is, if you're in the Louvre and you're looking at the Mona Lisa, turn around, there's this huge painting. Many people miss it, and it's the wedding of Cana. Napoleon actually helped himself to it. It came from Venice, and it ended up in Paris. And so the refectory where it was originally painted for by Veronese, they have had a one-to-one -one copy made of that painting by Factum Art. And they're a Spanish group of people, and they scan the painting and it's an absolute facsimile. So it's not, you know, not, not freehand per se. It's actually a facsimile copy. And so now the refectory actually has the copy. So it, it looks like the authentic uh, building that, that it was originally.